An Undeceptions podcast. Hey, John Dixon here. I so thoroughly enjoyed my discussion with Rosalind Picard for our recent episode titled Emotional Intelligence. And I wanted to share with my fellow undeceivers the full story of how this titan of MIT came to trust in Jesus Christ. So here's Rosalind telling me the story. You've been reasonably public about your Christian faith. Uh, I saw a tweet the other day from you that uh, wished everyone a Merry Christmas, but then you said the word became flesh. So you're like one of those real, you know, (laughs) Christians quoting scripture and so on. But you haven't always been a believer. Am I right? Correct. So how did that happen? Oh, you want the short version? <laughs> there, there's a slightly there's an article I wrote for Christianity Today that describes the story. If people want to read that, we'll version. be linking to it. Yeah. Oh, okay. But we want the, the audio version. Yeah, the audio version. The audio version is I was one of those uh, smart, proud kids who did well in school and thought that religion was for people who weren't very smart. I was. You know, describing this, I realized how ignorant I was. Uh, but at the time, you know, hey, you're a good student. Your idea of religion comes mainly from the news where you hear of televangelists doing stupid things or the assumption that people believe in God like a little green alien or a, a made up, uh, you know, a cosmic bellhop. They ask for things to happen and those things don't happen. Come on, like, wake up. I thought it was for weak people who needed a crutch. Uh, Later, of course, I learned that we all need a crutch of some sort. But what happened was my neighbors I babysat for, who are really cool people, doctor, smart, hip young family, uh, kept inviting me to go to church. And I did not want to go to church. I did not want to wear a skirt. I thought you had to wear a skirt to go to church. I just really didn't want to waste time being associated with any of that stuff. So I would pretend to have a stomach ache. And uh, that happened several weeks in a row. That's risky with a doctor. It's risky with a doctor. (laughs) Yeah, so how smart I thought I was. Uh, Eventually, they wised up and realized I didn't want to go to church after weekly stomach aches and said, you know, what matters most is not that you go to church, it's what you believe. Have you read the Bible? And I realized the Bible was the best-selling book of all time. I've heard it's even not put on bestseller list today because it would be number one week after week, yeah, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's the best-selling Every book of all time. Every year except 2007. Really? When Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows out, outdid the Bible. Really? For one wow. year. But every other year, the Bible is the biggest seller. Wow. Yep. Wow. Well, thank you, J.K. Rowling, for, <laughs> uh, for Harry Potter. is a lot of fun. Uh, but I realized that to be the educated person that my young self thought I was, I should read the Bible. Hmm. They suggested that I start with Proverbs read one a day for a month. What an interesting and suggestion. Yeah. People people tell me nobody ever suggests starting yeah. with Proverbs. They say but, Gospel of John or Gospel right, of Luke. Right, yeah. Which, Which in my case, it was good because I started reading Proverbs expecting the Bible to be full of made-up gobbledygook, mm. gobbledygook, stupid stuff, apparitions, all this crazy stuff. And instead, you know, a few lines into Proverbs, I found myself uh, – recognizing wisdom and recognizing that I had a lot to uh, to learn and feeling a bit like, wow, uh, from Proverbs. 
And it, it was good for my egotistical uh, self to be confronted with something that was full of greater wisdom than I was getting from anywhere else. I read not only all of the Proverbs, uh, I realized some friends of mine who were going through confirmation in their churches were, were challenging each other to read the whole Bible. They got this uh, version called The Way that allowed you to check off a box for each book of the Bible. And I started reading three books of the Old Testament and two of the New Testament every day. Uh, I read through the Bible in a year. I found myself in the course of doing that uh, quite conflicted because I did not want to believe in God or any of this stuff. And yet I felt I was, uh, I, I felt like, not like a neurological case where a person has voices in their head and they need to go to a doctor, but I felt like I was being spoken to in a way that was very deep and I could not keep ignoring. Uh, and it troubled me. I was, this took me quite a bit of time before I became a believer because I was really fighting it. I started reading some of the history around the church. I started studying other religions. I started reading some of the other religious books thinking that maybe this was just a product of growing up in the West, uh, which of course is not the case, right? As we see, faith didn't start in the West. Christianity didn't start in the West and isn't growing fastest here. I um, as I studied other religions and visited mosques and temples and got to know people from different faiths, I realized I was becoming a believer, not only in God, uh, but starting to wonder about um, Jesus and starting to read more about what Jesus said. It took me a lot longer to accept Jesus, I'll have to say. I started to believe in God gradually, um, you know, in high school. Uh, middle school, high school. Again, I was not a quick convert here. I still would not set foot in a church. And when I, I feel like I was a real difficult convert here. Um, finally, in college, my freshman year, uh, other than like, th that's not true. I did set foot. I visited some churches when I was 16 working over in France where nobody knew me. I felt like I didn't want to be seen yeah. as a Christian. Mm -hmm. I felt like the you know, maybe it's a marketing thing, but it had all the wrong imagery associated with it. Uh, when I was 16 working in France, I visited some churches. Of course, they spoke in French, so it wasn't very helpful for bringing my faith along. In college, a really cool friend who was, you know, like most valuable player, football, basketball, super smart guy, straight A student, uh, invited me to church with him. And I went to, at that time I said yes. Uh, and I went, I wanted to raise my hand in church and ask questions in the mm -hmm. middle of the sermon. Like, why aren't people raising their hand to ask questions? Like, how can, how come nobody's challenging mm -hmm. the preacher on that? Uh, so then I went to Sunday school to start getting my questions answered. In and Australia, Sunday school means what the little kiddies go to. But here in yeah. America, it means like adult classes. Yeah, like, there were yeah. adult classes. And it was, it was outstanding because you could ask questions. Hmm. You could actually start to dig into things that troubled you. And that was really valuable. Uh, and I um, decided to run an experiment um, to s change who was Lord of my life. Instead of that being me, which it had been, I thought, you know, if God's willing to do this, if Jesus is willing to uh, be Lord of my life, uh, got to do a better job than I would, right? And so 
I handed over the reins. But how did you get over that Jesus hurdle that you mentioned a moment ago? Like God, vague concept of God. Yeah, okay, tick. But but you were wary about Jesus being central. So how did you find that? Yeah, I think it just came from reading and rereading the words of Jesus and hearing uh, preaching, you know, talking about those words, as well as learning more about historical evidence for Jesus. This wasn't some made-up thing, right? I mean, crazy talking to you about this, right? I would love to learn more about this from you. I read what I could get my hands on at the time, and your book didn't exist back then. But it was very eye-opening to realize that this is not a made-up thing, right? There is, you know, outstanding historical evidence, uh, why don't we, why doesn't everybody know about this? Why do people keep treating this like a children's story? And so <clears throat> you eventually, you know, embrace, excuse me, embrace the faith. And, um, but you pursued this science nonetheless. Did, did, you, did you have to compartmentalize? You know, some people will think you've got to com- compartmentalize religion and science in order to do good science. When, when I'm actually building a mathematical model or, uh, you know, running a behavioral human studies experiment, there are scientific methods that we practice that you can practice whether you're a person of faith or not, right? There are best practices. Uh, same when you're doing history of religion, right? You, you want to have the best historical practices. That said, behind all science there's a scientist, there's a person who values some things more than others, who does or doesn't care about people, uh, who does or doesn't care about, uh, well, actually one thing they almost all care about is truth, trying to understand what is true. And what's super interesting is if you start probing the foundations of that wanting to find what is true, it's presupposing that some things are true and some things aren't, that there is a meaningful world out there, that some some cause has brought about a world where it's not all just random, purposeless, meaningless, where it doesn't matter what I say or what I do in my experiment, but that these things, that, uh, that an ethic, a uh, truthfulness matters. And if you start probing that, then you're not doing science anymore. You're in another space. Uh, the philosophers will say, that's our space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but even the philosophers can't get you uh, out of our own minds and world and universe and, and dimensions and physics and all of space and time, right? We have to go uh, somewhere beyond all of what our human mind can handle. But do you feel your faith um, helps your science, hinders your science, is neutral to science? I'm trying to probe, you know, yeah. what, what your sort of daily experience of both well, being a committed Christian and being a committed scientist is yeah. like. Well, personally, my faith drives my science. Mm. It drives what I choose to do each day. I, for example, in my science when I started realizing how important emotion was in the brain for producing intelligent behavior and decision-making and perception and action and so forth. Uh, It was, at the time, a very kind of embarrassing and unwanted 
area of research for people to work on. One, one respected colleague came up to me and said, Roz, why are you working on this? You know, this is like the noise. You don't want to waste your career on this. Now, mind you, the whole time he was looking at my feet, right? We, we joke in engineering, if the engineer is looking at your feet, he's an extrovert. If he's looking at his own feet, he's an introvert. Uh, this was a very well-respected engineer who wouldn't read my facial expressions. There's a lot of that in engineering. Uh, later, he and many others like him started asking me for my data, and they started working on affective computing too. So I, I was on to something early, but it was an embarrassing area to work on. Now, what made me uh, say I'm willing to throw away my whole career and you know take on embarrassment uh, for some science that I think actually needs to be done? That's important here. Well, it was my faith. It was that I talked to. Uh, in prayer to God, God, what do you want me to do today? What do you want me to work on? Uh, what do you think is most important? And uh, in, in fact, all of the affective computing stuff, it's even a little more embarrassing than that. I, it came to me once when I was reading the scriptures and I was convicted that I should stop grumbling <laughs> so much. I had this long commute that I grumbled about. And one night I, after the scriptures where it was like, you know, stop your grumbling, don't spend this commute grumbling. Um, on the long commute, the affective computing ideas came into my head. Uh, and i like, I don't want to work on this. This will ruin my career. This is embarrassing. This is risky. This is crazy. Then I um, arranged a lunch with the former president of MIT, who I was on a grant proposal with, uh, Jerry Wiesner, who our building was named after. And I asked, he had been science advisor to John F. Kennedy and amazing uh, leader and thinker. And I asked Jerry, you know, what, what should junior faculty like me be doing? And he said, you must take risks. You must take risks, right? And then I, uh, you know, one thing led to another. I started seeking wisdom and input from a lot of people. I kept seeking the truth and the science. I kept reading. More useful things were coming to me. And gradually, this all came together. Uh, in my book, I say, it, um, you know, in the acknowledgments, uh, sola deo gloria, right? This was all an act of faith. I remember praying, okay, God, if I'm throwing away my whole career with this, I know you must have a better plan, right? And so it was, it was stepping out in faith because the engineers around me were saying, like, this is, don't get associated with this, right? I knew it was difficult. Uh, of course, it turned out to be very um, successful in the sense of the technology career-wise, right? It became a field, there's a respected journal, there's uh, respected communities, professional societies, lots of people working on it. And I'd say really amazing community with engineers, psychologists, neuroscientists, uh, lots of different kinds of expertise coming together, usually with an amazing heart to try to help improve people's lives with this technology, not to just make computers more emotional. The cliche is that um, the kind of robust Christian faith that you're talking about, you know, prayer, Jesus, you know, all these things, um, is really rare in science. Now, here you are at MIT, you know, one of the great establishments for science in the world. Is that yeah. your experience? There are a lot of Christians at MIT. There are a lot of Christians in the faculty. There are a lot of Christians in the leadership. We've had a number of presidents of MIT who are devout Christians, uh, devout praying, um, engaging in Bible study seeking God's will in their lives daily. 
we may not be in people's face with our face, but it's very powerful here. And it's, um, you know, it's, it guides uh, everything we choose to do, and hopefully, uh, hopefully we follow that guidance. That, that's another issue, right? None of us is uh, perfect at that, mm. my, myself included. There are times when I should slow down and listen a little bit more instead of running forward with the scientific community. So we, we need God's input and God's wisdom and guidance for our way, and especially in science, because these are powerful tools. Rosalind Pigard, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. My, my pleasure. An Undeceptions podcast.